want to invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. This will be a fun one. So, <laughs> Daniel 7 is, uh, we're continuing our study in the book of Daniel. I was telling my parents where I'm preaching on Daniel 7 tomorrow, and my mom said, why? And I said, because we're going through the book of Daniel, and uh, that's the next chapter. He's like, oh, that makes sense, okay. Um, and so, it's a tough chapter. It's, it's, it's a weird chapter. Um, even the writer, Daniel, who records all these things, was pretty freaked out by all these things. So if you feel that way, you're in good company with Daniel. <laughs> so um, before we even read the passage, uh, today actually marks a transition in this book. So the first six, six chapters of Daniel are historical narrative. They were telling a story to make spiritual points. But from chapter 7 here all the way to the end of the book, you should know two things. One is that the literary style of this book changes. And it's not narrative. Now we move into what's called apocalyptic genre or prophetic genre. The apocalyptic literature should not be read the same way that we read a story. Where in a story, the details and specifics serve to heighten or accelerate a plot line. In prophetic or apocalyptic literature, the symbols and images don't all bear literal interpretations and direct correlations to other things. They are symbolic in nature and should be interpreted as such. In fact, anytime we over-literalize parts of scripture that were written as symbolic or in a genre that was not meant to be taken literally, we can get into a lot of trouble. And so, um, even when I, when I remember being, being a teenager and, you know, a critique of Christians is, uh, in my circles was, well, y'all just take the Bible too literally. We said, well, no, we, we treat the Bible the way it was intended to be treated. So when Jesus said, I am the door, we don't believe he's a big plank of wood. We, we realize that there is a symbol that he's conveying there. And so um, are we literalist? Yes, in that we literally interpret the Bible the way it literally meant to be interpreted, which means sometimes there are symbols. Does that make sense? So it, we, it can be dangerous if we over-literalize parts of Scripture that were not meant to be taken literally, even if doing so does uh, prove to be a great way to sell books and make B-class Christian movies. Um, we don't want to do that. Secondly, the timing of the unfolding of future events is more two-dimensional than three-dimensional. So what I mean by that is a helpful analogy that has been made is, is when, you're, when you're driving... Um, and you're leaving West Texas and it's flat, and you're going into the mountains of Big Bend or New Mexico or somewhere, and you see the mountain range in the distance, it, it looks rather flat. Um, but as you get closer to it, and you see all these peaks and ridges, you, you realize that actually some mountains are a lot farther apart. So this happens a lot. You know, I remember this happening in Nepal. Like, that's got to be the highest mountain in Nepal. And no, actually the one that's over here is 10,000 feet higher than this one. But it's so far off in the distance that from this perspective, it can be misleading. So in prophetic literature, the, the prophets are looking down and they're seeing some things that are going to happen pretty soon and some things that are really far off, but they're seeing them more two-dimensionally and not always discerning the depth uh, at the time that it's being written. So that's why we find things just kind of being combined together in prophetic literature and leaves us wondering, well, is this something that's going to be fulfilled in the future? Is this something that's already been fulfilled? 
And we just need time and the rest of the Bible to help answer a lot of those questions. So, again, we want to read the Bible the way it was intended to be read. And if we don't, we won't understand it rightly. Um, And so, as we come to chapter 7, and for the rest of the book, we're moving into apocalyptic literature. Um, So, let's read this whole chapter. If you want to look at it with me, we're going to read the whole chapter. Daniel chapter 7. This is the word of the Lord. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, this horn horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things." As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And thousands, thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And a court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things." These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and stood before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. 
Amen. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall rise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Well, Lord, I am very aware of your, the, my need for you to help us understand this, help me articulate what is here, help us to grasp the, the life-giving bread that you want to feed us this morning and to be fed by it, to be nourished by it. So please bless the preaching of your word and let your voice be the clearest in the room as we look at these things together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So that's an interesting chapter, right? <laughs> um, well, how do we think of this? Um, in the Back to the Future trilogy, Steven Spielberg does, I would say, a mediocre job of exploring the complexities of time travel. Now, I love movies, but I, I think they're, I, think, I love the Back to the Future movies, um, but I think that they're highly reductionistic. They're internally contradictory on several levels. They leave way too many holes in the plot line. They're frustrating at their oversimplification of the space-time continuum, quantum physics, the butterfly effect, and the very fabric of the cosmos. Like, Spielberg, why aren't you addressing all this? Um, in Back to the Future 2, Biff obtains an almanac, a sports almanac from the future, and travels back in past where he bets on sporting events and easily turns himself into a millionaire because, of course, he knows all the results of everything. Um, with the right knowledge about the future, he can rewrite his present and determine his own storyline. You know, sometimes we can approach prophetic literature that way. Uh, but we need to understand that Daniel 7 is not God bringing a future almanac back into 522 B.C., but if, in other words, if you open up Daniel 7 and a world map and pull up your favorite trusted conspiracy website and you hold your mouth just right, you're not going to be able to divine the future. Um, that's not the intent of this. It's not our job to play connect the dots with Daniel 7 and all of the particulars in our world. So just to set you at ease, this chapter is... Uh, we're not about to get out charts and maps and identify every detail. And this chapter is not about Trump or Russia or the Pope or the vaccine or anything like that. Um, to, to look for those kinds of things in this chapter would be to miss the forest for the trees. Um, so there will be a lot left unaddressed. If you're somebody who has studied this chapter and you want to know where I or Pastor Billy land on the particulars, be happy to have that conversation uh, some other time. So a lot will be left unaddressed. What I want to get to is what is 
the intended effect of this chapter on God's people. What does God intend to do with this vision? How, how does he intend it to land on our lives? What is the point of the chapter? So to get that, let's just remember the context. Here, we're in about the mid-500s BC. God's people are in exile. The promise that God's people would one day, this is a Vaughn Roberts phrase that's just good to remember, that the promise that God's people would one day be gathered together in God's place under God's rule and enjoying God's blessing seems all but lost. There's no temple, there's no priest, it's all in ruin. And here we are, here Daniel is. And this book arrives in their lives with a purpose, and it arrives in our lives with a purpose as well. And like the original readers, we too are living in exile. Evil seems to prevail. Opposition to God's people seems to be intensifying. People seem to be making shipwreck of their faith. And we wonder, what will the outcome of all this be? Where is all of this headed? What will life look like for us in 10 years or 50 years? Well, God doesn't give us an almanac for the future, but he does give us Daniel 7 to show us, what I think is the main point here, that despite increasing opposition to God's rule, God is still directing history towards his appointed end. So the title of the sermon is the, is the shortest summary of this chapter I can think of. God wins. God wins. Think that, think, keep that in mind when you read Daniel 7 and following and when you read the book of Revelation. The point is, no matter what opposition comes, God wins. And in particular, that's elucidated through his unfolding and directing of human history towards the end, which is that God wins. The vision assured Daniel and the original readers of this reality. And it's given to us today to help us remain faithful that in, in no matter what opposition may come our way, to assure us that while we may be fretting, God is not fretting. He is not worried. He knows how all of this is going to turn out. And not simply because he has the almanac and he just knows the future, but he is directing human history and the courses of our lives towards his intended glorious end. And he is doing it with a purpose. So point one, we get this from verses 1 through 8, that God is sovereign over the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms. We see this the way it's, it, it, the image of this, these beasts emerge in verse 2. The wind and sea stirred them up. The wind and sea are both images of danger and power in the ancient world. Things you can't control. And that's where these four beasts come from. Four beasts implying four directions, north, south, east, and west, meaning these are like uncontrollable forces coming from all directions. Have you ever felt that way? That there are un things in your life that you can't control that are coming at you from all directions? Well, this point is showing us that God is sovereign over the rise and fall of kings, sovereign over the rise and fall of kingdoms, sovereign over the rise and fall of things that come at you in life that feel like they're totally out of your control. This first beast was part lion, part eagle, emphasizing strength and majesty along with speed and power. But he was transformed, given the feet and mind of a man. So it's likely this is a reference to King Nebuchadnezzar, who was described in similar terms in Daniel chapter 2 and as well as in Ezekiel. King Nebuchadnezzar, who was great and powerful, but was humbled by God and cut down to size. 
The second beast was a bear, raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth, pointing to his power to devour and dominate. Many have seen this as a reference to the Medo-Persian Empire who uh, took and conquered Babylon and took over, took over Babylon. We saw that at the end of Daniel 5. The third beast was part leopard, part bird, emphasizing speed and agility. Many people think, uh, of course, this is retrospectively looking back at it, that, that this might have referred to Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great uh, rose to power very quickly and conquered the known world in a very short amount of time by the time he was 32 years old. An incredible speed at which he conquered the known world. That didn't happen until about 150 years after Daniel. So that one was likely future, if, if that's what that was referring to. But this fourth beast was an anomaly. Daniel makes that very clear. There was just no earthly equivalent. At least the others, you could say, well, it kind of looks like a, a bird and a leopard. And, but this one, he just doesn't have a category for. Its strength was multiplied. It says it, it was terrible and dreadful. It overshadowed the other three on every level. Looking back on it, many believe this was a prophecy of the coming Roman Empire, which was the political and military context, remember, that Jesus and the whole New Testament found themselves in, was the context of the Roman Empire. Um, there are lots of other ways that these beasts can be taken uh, to, to be understood. I'm not going to get into all of those, but those are, those are ones that seem most likely. Point is, there are some major superpowers here. Some known to Daniel, others not yet known at his life, in his lifetime. But the point is, God is shown to be sovereign over their rise and fall. Notice some of the language in here. Look at verse 4. The eagle's wings were plucked off, passive voice. He was, it was lifted up. It was made to stand. The mind of a man was given to it. In other words, there is some other agent bringing about these things, doing the rising up, doing the plucking off, making him to stand, giving him the mind of some other agent is at play in the, the evil operations of this beast. Same with the bear in verse 5. The bear was raised up. He was told what to do. There is another authority that's speaking to him. Verse 6, the leopard had to be granted dominion. He didn't take it to himself. He was granted dominion. Even the great and terrible beast we see later in verse 26, he would eventually be judged and have his dominion taken away and he would be consumed and destroyed to the end. In other words, in all cases, their power was not self-made. God rules over the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms, even the evil ones. Meaning no matter who comes to power, God makes no mistakes. But you may say, how can this be when there is still so much evil in the world? If God is totally in control, directing all things, is he responsible for evil then? God is not the author of evil. He tempts no one and is tempted by no one, the Bible teaches. But he does raise up and tear down. No one comes to power except at his bidding. All four beasts will later be judged and their dominions will be taken away. But God can do that because he's the one that gave them to him to begin with. Because he alone is sovereign over the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms. And guess what? If he's sovereign over the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms, he's no less sovereign over the rise and fall of your life. 
over the rise and fall of your job or your new boss at work or the changing policies that you're having to adapt to. He's no less sovereign over your rebellious child or over your failures as a parent. He's even sovereign over any injustice that you might have suffered. He is sovereign over it all, directing it all towards his appointed end. We are not left to fate or to the hand that dealt us, uh, dealt with the, the hand that deals to us from an un, impersonal universe, which is how the world mostly speaks of fate. God has a purpose in every detail, small and great. And his sovereign authority, oh yes, it may be contested and challenged by the puny gods of this world, but it is never ultimately overpowered or thwarted. See, King Nebuchadnezzar eventually recognized this as part of his humbling. In chapter 4, verse 35, he said, All the inhabitants of the earth are as counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Why? Because God is sovereign over the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms. If he wasn't, he couldn't ensure us about anything in the future if he could not declare that he is sovereignly in control of it all. But he does, and he is. And it's how he directs history towards the end that he has determined. What is that end? It's to bring God's people into God's place under God's rule to enjoy God's blessing. And this kingdom, contrary to earthly ones, is an everlasting kingdom. That's what we see as we come to the next scene. So we move from the scene of wind and water and beast. Now, in verse 9, we move to a new scene. Now the scene is the throne of heaven. And here we see that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, point two. And we're introduced to some new characters. In verse 9 through 12, we have what I would just call God the Father. Contrary to these beasts and the chaos and turmoil and fear by which they're characterized, notice the scene in heaven. This is of the everlasting God. The other kings and kingdoms may rise and fall. They'll have their days of glory, but those days will come to an end. But this is the, he's described in verse 9, the ancient of days. He existed before these terrible but comparably tiny kings. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God, Psalm 90 says. His plans and rule extend into eternity future. And unlike the kings and kingdoms that these powerful beasts represent of his kingdom, there will be no end. We read that in Isaiah 9 during Christmas time. Of his rule, there will be no end. See, the picture of this king in verse 9 is, what is he doing? He took his seat, it says. He sits on the throne. No one gives him his seat. No one gives him his throne. No one can take it away from him. It's his. And thousands upon thousands and ten thousands of ten thousands are serving and worshiping him. His clothing is described as white as snow and his hair pure as wool, representing his perfect purity and holiness. Fire proceeds from his eyes and from the throne, representing his perfect justice. Verse 11, there's this interesting little horn that pops up from the fourth beast. And this little horn is mouthing off in the face of this king. And that little horn is the one that first faces judgment. Verse 12, then the other three follow. Point, anyone who sets himself up against this ancient of days will be brought down in due time. This is the, the picture of the throne and those that challenge it and contest it. God will have the final say. And praise God 
for God's people who have been brought into his place, who look to him as their sovereign king, who is sovereign over the rise and fall of kings and who grants this everlasting kingdom. But it's not just God the Father, the Ancient of Days that's here. Look at verse 13. Then I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. This phrase, one like a son of man, has theological particularity. See, in the book of Ezekiel, as elsewhere in the New Testament, it can refer to a human man. In Ezekiel, it's a title of choice to refer to the prophet Ezekiel himself. But here, it's not a synonym for just a person or just a man. Yes, he is like a son of man, meaning that he has human likeness. But is this just a reference to a man or is, there so, is this something else entirely? Well, the text answers that. Notice what happens when that sets this son of man apart from anyone else. For one, he's able to stand before the ancient of days in his perfect purity and before the fire of his justice without being brought to an end. That tells you this, this, this son of man is not like the beast who are consumed in judgment, nor is he like the thousands who served the ancient of days. This son of man actually is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And this is set in contrast to the dominion, glory, and kingdom of the four beasts. How is it different? Well, look at it. His dominion is universal. We see this in verse 14, that all peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. It's not just universal. His dominion is everlasting. It says, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. It's not just universal. It's not just everlasting. It's unconquerable. His kingdom is one that cannot be destroyed. He's not just undefeated. He's undefeatable. These things can be said of no other human man. He is like a son of man, but he is categorically other than that. That's why we sing songs, who is like the Lord our God? There is none like him. And the great ancient of days is granting dominion to him. So who is he? Oh, glory, glory upon glories. 500 years later, Jesus would arrive on the scene. And what is the most common way he would refer to himself? With the title, Son of Man. It was a way, yes, to convey his eminence as fully human. But the tie back to Daniel 7 would have been obvious to a Jewish audience right away. See, it's not just that he is man. But this Son of Man designation is the God-man of Daniel 7. It is the one to whom the Ancient of Days gives the kingdom as an everlasting kingdom. It is the one whose dominion is universal, is everlasting, is unconquerable and undefeatable. So every time Jesus calls himself son of man, that phrase carries these Old Testament theological overtones. So understand that when you see that phrase and you're reading the gospel. Understand that when you see a verse like Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, in in saying that, he's saying, I'm the one that the Ancient of Days granted the kingdom to, and I'm the one who will lay down my life for the sheep and give my life as a ransom for many. There, There is so much wonderful redemptive theology packed into that verse And the fact that Jesus came the first time as the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 provides the foundation for our assurance that he will indeed come the second time. 
Jesus himself talked about this in Matthew 24, 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. There it is. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Again, I think that is, that is allusions to Daniel chapter 7. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds. From one end of heaven to the other. This is the, 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 what Jesus has come to do. He is fulfilling the, the role of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. And giving us assurance. Not only that, that, not only that he has come and done his redemptive work. But that provides the foundation that he will finish his redemptive work in the second coming. So it leaves us asking the question, where, where, where do we stand? Are we part of the beast of the, the kingdoms of this world? Or are we looking to Jesus who came once and who will most assuredly come again to gather up his people and take them home? See, all of humanity will fall into that category of either gathered up with Jesus and taken home to heaven or cast out forever in judgment along with the beasts. Now is the time. Decide. Come to Jesus and be saved. So in this passage, you know, as we're looking at this, how do we think of this concept that this is the end that God is directing all of human history towards? This is it. This is what he's directing it towards. That should have an impact on how we view our own lifetime, how we read and think about history. In other words, are you interpreting history from below, from the images that arose out of the water and the wind and the sea? Or from above, the images of the throne room of heaven? It's too easy to live out of what's just right in front of us. Things that we can see with our eyes and that we can make sense of with our minds. But there's always that perspective from heaven. We don't always get to peek behind the curtain and see what God is doing, but here we do. And we see that he's directing history towards this appointed end from his position as the sovereign one, the one who is seated on his throne. So where do you find yourself welling up with fear and anxiety in your heart over what's happening in the world right now, what's happening in your life right now? How much time do you spend studying the kingdoms of this world? Or maybe the kingdom, the little kingdom that's right in front of you with family and children. And, you know, what, what, what feels overwhelming about all of that? What occupies the mental space the most for you? It's not to say we, we shouldn't be discerning the world and culture and history and reading the, the Bible and understanding, trying to understand what God is up to and what's coming. We should be doing our due diligence that. But the real question is, what occupies our mental space? What burdens our heart? What, what is our focus? See, it's so easy, so easy to feel just overwhelmed and overcome by all of the opposition out there and the obstacles that we're facing. But are you taking time to study the unchanging king and his unchanging kingdom? That's the title of our Daniel series, Unchanging King, Unchanging Kingdom. Are we looking at that? 
So let's be looking there. Let's be seeking to understand that. Let's be putting our minds and hearts in the Bible where it's going to show us this unchanging king and this unchanging kingdom. The kingdoms of this world are coming and going. They're passing away. They're all going to crumble. But we have an unchanging king and an unchanging kingdom. And we're invited to look to him, to come and see this ancient of days. He's taken his seat on the throne. He's giving the kingdom and dominion to Jesus. They, They are dwelling in perfect peace while the world rages on. This is the one that we look to. And his kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. Point three, there is a two-part dual assurance about the future in here as well. These visions alarm Daniel. They greatly trouble him. Until some explanations provided in verse 16 to 18. The four beasts, we're told, are four kings. But the messenger standing there introduces a new character in verse 18. Look there. He says, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So here, God's people are taking possession of the kingdom that was presented to the Son of Man. And so the question we're left with, okay, so when does that happen? And well, we receive the kingdom in one sense, an everlasting kingdom at salvation, right? That's what Jesus meant. When, when he, t- he talked regularly about the kingdom. He wasn't talking about something that is only future. There's a present aspect to that kingdom. We receive it at salvation. In other words, at salvation, we are turning to the king, King Jesus, and submitting our lives to his authority. And in that sense, we have entered into his kingdom. A kingdom that he delivered, that he brought, that he inaugurated with his death, burial, and resurrection. So we receive the kingdom at salvation. But we don't possess it in full until we get to heaven. So this is the already, not yet. In one sense, we already have the kingdom. In another sense, the kingdom is not yet. Which is why there's still evil and opposition in the world. We, we, we don't possess it in full yet, but we will when we get to heaven. And so there are two assurances in all these details about how this will take place. The first, in verses 19 through 25 we see that the assurance, there's an assurance that more opposition is sure to come. Sure to come. Daniel's really troubled about this fourth beast. Wouldn't you be? I mean, all of these probably? This is pretty crazy stuff. It's unlike anything he'd ever seen. He's terrified. And it's explained to Daniel that this fourth beast is a kingdom different from all the other kingdoms. That it would, verse 23, devour the whole earth, trample it down, break it to pieces, This beast has ten horns on its head. And it's explained, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise. Then an eleventh one would come and take out three of the kings. And it's this eleventh one that would, verse 25, speak words against the Most High, wage war against the saints, and even prevail over them. And and we're later told, will wear out the saints. He'll think that he has the power to change time and law. In other words, he will blaspheme God, persecute God's people, and set himself up as God. And he'll be allowed to do so for a period of time. The precise definition of which is unclear, by the way. Uh, People want to read a lot into the phrase time, times, and half a time. And find everything from a period of months to years to... There's all kinds of things that are, are read onto that. Um, I think we should hold all of that very loosely because it's not explicitly spelled out as clear as some people make it sound. 
Point B, and he'll be allowed to do so for a period of time after which he'll be judged and destroyed. So, what does this mean for God's people? How do we make sense, for instance, of the moral nosedive that our country is in right now? The nation is raging, is it not? There's intense anger among people on various issues. There's even what we've talked about in, it's not just that immorality and sin is allowed and tolerated, but that it is to the point where it is now legislated. That is a whole new level of evil. That is a whole new level of deception that we are currently living in. It's, in some sense, a fulfillment of the point here that over time, suffering and opposition and Opposition, rebellion to God's rule is going to get worse as the world becomes more decadent in its immorality and in its hatred of God. More opposition is sure to come. How do we respond? What is the Christian's posture or attitude in a world that is spinning out of control and plunging down in immorality? Doing exactly what the Bible prophesies is going to happen. How do we respond to that? What is our attitude? What is our posture? As we come into our own, which you might call our own Apocalypseburg. Yes, um, I have small children, so that's a Lego 2 reference. Are we to be more like like Emmett, who's waltzing through town while everything is in chaos and turmoil, falling apart, singing, everything is awesome and whistling? Is that our attitude? Or are we to be more like Wildstyle, who is brooding over the state of evil and saying only the strong will survive and amassing all of the power and weapons that she can because it's all about survival in this evil world. War hardens the heart. And, uh, you know, wh- what is our attitude? Is it, is it more like Emmett or Wildstyle? Well, I, I think this text calls us and the original readers to something entirely different. It calls us to what we see in... F- Colossians 1.23 is steadfastness and hope. Steadfastness and hope in the midst of opposition. The original readers, they were living in exile and being ruled and dominated by pagan tyrants. But despite rising opposition to God's rule, they could find steadfastness and hope as they read about this because they see that God is directing history towards his appointed end. And the effect that that has on those living in exile, those living in their own Apocalypseburg, or about to live in their own Apocalypseburg, um, it, the, the, the effect of that reality is that it produces steadfastness and hope in the heart of the believer. So we can look at this assurance that more opposition is to come, and we can find steadfastness and hope in that. Because we see that God is directing history towards his appointed end despite increasing opposition. And secondly, there's the other assurance we see in verses 26 through 28 that in the end, God's kingdom will triumph. Listen, the day's coming when God's people will be vindicated. All the wrongs that God's people have suffered will be made right. Every martyr will be exalted and granted eternal safe passage in the new home. Every sufferer will come to see that suffering does not have the last word. That the ancient of days is the one whose kingdom and word endure forever. Every sacrifice ever made for the sake of the kingdom will be seen to be worth it when we stand in heaven. 
and every sacrifice that we have bypassed in exchange for fleeting, crumbling things that represent this kingdom and everything with it that's passing away will be seen to be so trivial. So how can a truth like this help a fearful saint now? How can it help a persecuted Christian in a country that's closed to Christianity where brothers and sisters are suffering and dying for their faith? Because you do realize that is happening around the world on a daily basis. Well, one day, verse 27, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness will be given to the people of the saints and the most high. All other dominions shall serve and obey them. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that means or what that'll look like, and really smart people are divided over what that could mean. But the point is this, the powers of this world will no longer hold sway over the people of God. They will dwell in perfect safety in the presence of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. When that will happen? Mystery. You got me. Don't come up and ask me that. When will that? Don't know. That it will happen? Absolutely. On the grounds of Jesus' finished work, as sure as he rose from the dead, he will complete this work. No matter what opposition increases, God is directing history toward his intended end. And this is the picture of that. It is certain. So we put these two assurances together and it it, it makes us realize two things. One, we cannot expect that kingdom and dominion to arrive in its fullness here and now. As I mentioned earlier, the kingdom was inaugurated with Jesus when he came the first time and it will be consummated with Jesus when he comes the second time. That means that in between the times, in between the two comings, the kingdom will be contested. So as we look at the long arc of human history in light of God's purposes, we can see these two things, that things will worsen, the world will worsen over time, and it's evil, it will get darker, harder, more evil, more rebellious to God, and Christ's kingdom will shine brighter and brighter in the midst of that darkness until one day the Son of Man returns on the clouds and all of the kingdoms that have set themselves up against God will finally be overthrown and a new heavens and new earth will be established. We're not there yet, so we don't lose heart over God's delay or the persistent suffering we face or worsening opposition that we encounter. We know His day is coming. And so this is also an exhortation to stay on mission for Jesus. What, what things distract us from the mission that he's given us? We are soldiers enlisted in his army, 1 Timothy tells us. And so as we realize that the kingdom is not yet here, but it's coming, and we're made for that, we're not yet home, the world is not our home, it should exhort us to stay on mission and to keep with the task. Because in the end... God wins. That's that's the end of this. So just to, to wrap this up, again, even the two words, God wins, have theological freight behind it. And it's given to us right here in the chapter. In opposition to God, in increasing evil, in evil seeming to prevail, the nations raging and plotting, God wins. You see this in Psalm 2, where it says, why, why do the peoples rage and the nations plot in vain? Kings and nations conspiring together, plotting against the Lord. And what does it say? It says that the Lord sits in heaven and just laughs. 
He laughs at it. Why? Because he's not threatened by the opposing rule. He's not fretting over it like we are. He's directing it towards his intended ends. Why? Because they think they're in charge. But only the Ancient of Days controls the flow of human history. He's the only one that directs it towards the ends that he has appointed. So do you find yourself worried and anxious? That's a common human experience even for believers. But it's why we need this passage. Because in here we have this unchanging king. And we see that we've been given this unchanging everlasting kingdom. And so no matter how bad the opposition to this king and this kingdom may get, the king is still on his throne. And he's still directing things towards his glorious end in which Christ returns. And the kingdom that he inaugurated at his first coming gets consummated in his second coming. We see this assurance in Hebrews 12. At this time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made. In order that the things can, that cannot be shaken may remain. Let us, therefore, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So brother, sister, take heart. Look to him. Cling to him. Be, be released from the things that will be shaken and removed. And be anchored in the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Because no matter what happens, in the end, God wins. Let that be a source of hope, assurance, confidence, peace for your heart this morning. Let's stand together. And Eric, if you want to close with, we, we introduced Ancient of Days a few weeks back and we've sung it a number of times knowing that we're coming to this passage to see it uh, would be a wonderful way to close our service by singing that. Lord, we thank you for these wonderful assurances in this passage. Even though there's a lot of imagery and mysterious things and we can get bogged down in the particulars, it's clear what the point is that you are sovereign you're directing the course of human history, that you have a glorious end that you intend to usher your people towards. And Lord, we want to be aware of that. We want to look to you. We want to be helped and encouraged by that certain future that you've secured for us. Help that to happen in each of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.